Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. All right, we're here this morning with Larry McRae. Larry, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Rich? Doing fantastic. How are you holding up with the uh, with our situation here? You know, most of us are feel like we're under house arrest. I guess you guys are not actually under house arrest. Just recommended you stay home. Yeah, and you know, Southern Utah is full of wide open spaces where what we used to do for fun, we can still do for fun without violating the uh, social restrictions. I guess. You can jump on your razor and go drive. Even if you're with a couple of buddies, you can still stay far enough apart where safe and still do what we would have been doing the weekends anyway. Uh, But I've been staying busy here at the house, just catching up on projects that have been piling up. So uh, in that sense, it's been great for the business. It's really uh, been impactful. I mean, we are in the tourism industry now and it is 100% shut down here. So. We're feeling that we're seeing that with our uh, hotel that we have here in Texas. There's not uh, not a lot going on. In fact, through the the whole of April, most of March, we we lost all of our business and cancellations. But uh, it'll all come back around here shortly. I hope. Hopefully, the economy starts to flourish and uh, everybody gets back to to doing what they they've decided to do. So let's. Uh, Let's talk about the beginnings. Um, where did where did you grow up? So I grew up in a little rural town in Southern California, Banning, Beaumont. There was two communities, but uh, we kind of bounced back and forth between the two towns as, as I was growing up. But the only thing to do for recreation there as a teenager was go out and drive around in the dirt in your trucks. And that's what we did for fun. And our family vacations were spent you know, if it was just a weekend trip, we'd go up to the mountains in the Bronco and drive around. If it was, uh, you know, or we'd hook up our little travel trailer and we'd go explore ghost towns or you know, all kinds of places around the Southwest that weren't accessible unless you had four-wheel drive. So it kind of got me hooked. Like when I was 13, learned to drive on that Bronco when I was 13. Uh, and that's been my passion for a long time, <laughs> for my whole <laughs> life, I would say. What was your uh, what was the first car that that you got to to drive? You know, your own car or family car that was handed down? Yeah, it was a family car handed down from my sister. We we had horses when we were kids, and 
my sister had a Datsun pickup truck that she used to use to get hay and feed and whatever. And uh, when she decided that she didn't want horses anymore and sold the horses and got a car, had this Datsun pickup in the family. So when I got it, it was full stock Datsun pickup. And back then there wasn't a whole lot of aftermarket, but <laughs> we uh, put a little body lift on it, probably had 31s and thought it was a stuff, a little, Roll cage or a roll bar with the KC lights, and it was the stuff back in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, a little desert bomber, uh, and that was kind of what we did. It was all kind of pre-runner stuff back then. Uh, the off-road race scene was pretty big in Southern California; it still is in Southern California, I and mean, it even was back then. Almost all the, the race teams were in a thirty-mile radius of where we lived, so kind of what we were into the four-wheeling part of it like when i was a kid cj fives were all that were available and i was in not desert trucks but more of a pre-runner kind of truck when i was a kid and i thought how dumb a cj5 was like i'm going down the swash at 80 and this guy's only going 20 and is beating the crap out of him and it wasn't until my 30s before i got our first jeep and thought, oh, okay there's a lot more you can do with these than just mom down a sand wash but it was totally different back then that's all i cared about how far could i get out and down some wash and how fast could I get there? And then it went to how slow can I go <laughs> and still make this obstacle. So how long have, uh, have you and Sherry been together? We met in 92 and she had a, an off-road background. She was raised in uh, the Big Bear Mountains or Lake Arrowhead, near Lake Arrowhead. Uh, so they went out on quads for fun and she knew all the trails around Arrowhead and Big Bear. At that point, uh, I was recently divorced, kind of broke dick and had uh, a little S10 pickup truck, two wheel drive. And we would try to go do those trails around Big Bear and Arrowhead in the, uh, in the S10. And we got got some places. I, I look back at it after I got my Jeep and thought, how did we get up here in this drive S10 pickup? It was a lot of determination. Every hill you'd look, if you're starting to go down something, you'd think, can I get back up this way? Right. I really learn to pick the line when you had a one-wheel drive pickup truck. So you said your first Jeep was when you were about 30? Yeah, my when I was, when Courtney was born, I was a framer and I worked a lot of hours and it was starting to really take a toll on my body and actually, even a 30-year-old for a framer. So I my parents had an insurance business and a real estate business. So I had my insurance license, my real estate license, and started doing the uh, started doing real estate. And couldn't show real estate in a pickup truck, so I actually bought a Grand Cherokee, and that was my very first Jeep. And I went through a couple of those uh, before I got my first Wrangler. There's a kind of a backstory to the Wrangler. It was it was Father's Day, and my wife, first wife and I were recently separated and didn't really have the uh, visitation nailed down. And uh, it was Father's Day and I went to go get Courtney and she wouldn't let me have them. And mothers have all the rights <laughs> unless the court tells you otherwise. So I couldn't do anything about it. And I was so pissed I just went for a drive. And, and this Jeep lot 30 miles from town was, uh, or this used car lot was this Jeep. And I thought, man, that should be fun. That's something that we can do. Sherry and I were trying to figure out what kind of hobby can we do that's year-round. We were thinking about getting a boat, but that's pretty seasonal. And then we thought about it was just everything we did was kind of seasonal. I thought, well, a Jeep we can use in the desert in the summer, in the winter, in the mountains in the summer. And 
I saw some guy up in Bodie that was doing what I used to do as a kid with my dad, go out exploring in his Jeep. So ended up buying this Jeep. Had to buy it in Sherry's name, actually, because I was still going through a divorce. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that Jeep's still around. I just I just went out wheeling with it a couple weekends ago. Buddy uh, Super D owns it now and still love it. It's a pretty fun Jeep. Yeah, still pretty fun. Awesome. Still so how did you get involved with the with the competition scene? Uh, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, I was, I joined a four-wheel drive club and we got really active in uh, building trails out at Johnson Valley. It was the closest hardcore wheeling to us. And back then there wasn't even really rock crawling yet. It was just, you know, trail rides and Victor Valley had built a couple of trails. I think Sledge and Jack were built one of the first times we went out there. So we started going out and either adding on to those trails or building new trails. A lot of the trails they use today for King of the Hammers are trails that uh, either we built or I was the first one up or you know, Backdoor, Highway 20, Guardian, Resolution. A lot of those trails were just canyons at one point and then we went and finished them out. But the uh, club so active in all these events that the, the very first, I think the first rock calling event was at Choke Cherry. The second one was in Johnson Valley. And us and the Victor Valley Club uh, were judges for the event. Uh, we were in the Inland Empire Fold Club. So our club and the Victor Valley Club were, we took, you know, A courses and B courses and we covered them all. And I got to see all the courses. And then at the end of the day, I thought, stuff that we're, these are, I guess at that point, and we're doing this stuff on our Jeep every weekend, you know, and I'm on 33s and, and I would drive, I drove all the courses, no problems after watching these guys, you know, my course, only half the guys finished and after it was over, I drove right up and thought, God, I can do this, man, I can do it. And then I realized that it's pretty expensive to prep, maintain, you know, my, I had 44s, I probably should have had 60s, I should have had 5s back then instead of 33s and, uh, so I thought, yeah, it's probably as a young family and homeowner, I probably should play it smart and stay out of it. And then uh, met John Mundrin on the trails, did an ultimate adventure together, and really started becoming friends at, at that ultimate adventure back in 01. Him and Nelson were working on Tiny around then. I think it was a couple a year after that actually was built. But they John Nelson went to one rock hall and the event said, Well, I could build something that'd be competitive these things. So we built Tiny. Him and John went out and they were practicing with it. Compete. I think they even competed a few times. And they had a spotter who was a friend of John's. He wasn't necessarily a rock crawler, but he was, you know, a great mechanic, which typically is a good co-driver in the desert. <laughs> and John was never really comfortable with him and and the spotter admitted that, you know, this wasn't what he didn't know, you know what he's doing. Back then it was, you know, you're lifting on the corners and you're pushing on the Jeeps and and uh, they still had spotter ropes, of course, back then, but it was more of a physical thing than it was a technical, tactical thing. And John and I have approached rock crawling kind of the same way. He asked if I wanted to come join him. And at first I thought, man, Tidy is absolutely opposite everything that we know about rock crawling right now if you want to rock crawl it's got to be tall so you get great break over and approach angle and departure angle 
Jeepers, and they all were almost all of them were full body Jeeps. There was a few buggies, you know, Campbell's had some, and I think Paulie had a couple back then, and maybe even Avalanche had some, but still nothing looked like tiny. And I was almost, I think I even told no the first couple of times. Finally, uh, Bundrant convinced me to go out for a weekend, just, just, just come out and see it work. And we went out and did stuff at the hammers that we've never been able to do on our trail rigs. I thought, oh my God, there's something here. This thing is seems pretty special. And uh, the very first event we did, Rich, was a put up or shut up, I think, uh, with yep. you. Like it was that all through? So anyway, we that was the very first event we did, and we won. And uh, from there, I thought, okay, this is there's something here. I'm, I'm gonna stick around. And it's funny, John. John has been in off-roading or off-road racing almost his entire life, and he knew nothing about rock crawling, but he built a rig that was very competitive, obviously. And, uh, and John Bundrant and I both knew how to rock crawl, but what Nelson did is taught us how to win. You know, we I think we we're the first teams that had uniforms the first teams that had the first team that had headsets i think we we're the first team that actually had team meetings we practiced like if we screwed up on a, a course at the event after everybody was gone we'd go back out set up our own cones and just keep doing it until we figured out what we had did done wrong and uh said okay now we know for next time uh, every between every event john would make little improvements on the car that uh you know, we were having problems with the ram getting caught up on on stuff, so we moved the ram up. And then he said, for every pound that John Bundrant lost, he would take two pounds off the car. So you know, we we're kept lightening the overall weight of the car and tuning the shocks. And we had setups for every single like if we went to Choke Cherry, we had a really low setup because it wasn't necessary. There was center of gravity was everything there. People still didn't didn't realize that back then and if we went to like johnson valley where it's big bowlers you know, we might raise a belly height an inch and a little bit more clearance and we would adjust it for per course and it was that and i don't think anybody at that point was uh, that into it i guess we had the dog leash which allowed me to get firm footing whenever i was pulling on the car because i didn't have to be 30 feet away with the rope i could be 10 feet away or seven and a half feet and still have uh, good footing and, and uh, full rope. So uh, a lot of stuff we did was groundbreaking. I think Tiny is still kind of the model of rock buggies today. And Tiny is almost 20 years old now. It's, it's crazy. I mean, I, I bet Tiny could come out of retirement right now. And uh, other than the rear steer, it'd still be pretty competitive. Rock Absolutely. Ball. Absolutely. He's a, uh... The gentleman in Mexico that has Tiny is uh, comes up to our events Does here he? in Texas. Yes, and I believe he's he was supposed to be up here for the the Mason K, uh, Katemsi Rocks event here the end of uh, March, but we didn't. Uh, of course, because of the COVID, right. we're, we didn't right. have it. But they're planning on coming up when we do have the event, and then uh, Scrapper. One of the scrapper chassis is there as well with rear steer. And wow. They were looking at at seeing what they could do with tiny to get rear steer, but I don't think the way the car yeah. is designed, rear steer is going to work real well. We looked but, at it back then, even when uh, when Tracy and uh, 
Jason were perfecting the art of rear steer. We thought, okay, to be competitive, we're going to have to figure this out. But Chinese uh, chassis was so wide in the back that you really couldn't get any steering angle uh, where Scrapper was built much narrower and had an opportunity to, to add rear steer. And it wasn't until the rear steer points went away that we ever thought it was going to be a necessity. Like now it's a necessity. I don't think you can compete without rear steer and win unless they have a non-rear steer class. But it seems like the unlimited class now, it's free rear steer and people are really good at it now. Yeah, the, the rear steer buggies nowadays, the vehicles are definitely built just around the rear steer. You know, of course, center of gravity and all, everything else have always been built for vision. Like Cody's Pretty Penny that Jesse Haynes built, the way they've got the bars set up so that when the driver's in there, there's not like two or three bars that may be in a vertical a vertical plane away from you that are staggered. They actually bring them in line so that so there's only it appears that there's only one bar, so it opens right. up more room for vision. Right. You know, angles of the way the motor sits in the, you know, the way the, the engine will be clocked, things like right. that. You know, things that were not thought about even, even at the, the stage when Nelson built Tiny, you know, there was, there was things that they weren't even, you know, at that point thinking about. Right. But it, it was a groundbreaking vehicle. And I think you guys were a, brown, a groundbreaking team as well by practicing by going back over what you did, have team meetings, and you really stepped up the professionalism of the sport. And that's all John Nelson. We learned, I learned so much from John. That's it's not only helped me in rock crawling, but in business itself. I mean, he is, uh, that family is sitting around a campfire listening to him, Eric, and his dad talk. I was so fortunate to be a part of that and get to hear these guys know. And then, you know, they'll have, drop in, you know, Arnelli Jones or Larry Ragland or you know, all of his trophy truck driver buddies that are always been heroes of mine. They would just pop in and hang out with us at campfires. God, this guy is this guy is something. It's I'm I am really fortunate to be in the middle of all this and I learned so much those few years uh doing that. You know, first year I was spotter only, second year John had uh, some issues with Ranch, and I think he just said, I'm not doing any more of these events. So I, uh, we were obligated to whatever sponsors they had at that point to finish the series. So I drove and had a buddy of mine spot. And then I think at that point, Bundred even owned Tiny. He had bought it from Nelson Built Scrapper. Uh, I think near the end of the 04 season, Mom Nelson wanted it to keep going going because John was going to sell it. So she bought Tiny and was going to have me drive. And, 2005 and we came back we we're i was driving home from supercrawl no four got a phone call from john nelson he just said we're nobody's circus clowns we're done and that was like getting hung up is that me <laughs> and he was so upset about how these concrete courses were taken away from sport you know it was technical strategical i mean you were had to think about what you're doing and now he said it's just throttle he said you know when a k5 blazer makes the toughest obstacle they have just because he can get a 454 or whatever and pinned it and just popped up to the top he says then it's not a technical sport anymore it's just a spectator show and he was just and he was out that was it she sold it they sold the car to jason and cheer and then uh 
I was a spectator. <laughs> it started and ended as fast as that. So how did you get the, uh, the nickname, Full Pole? That was a Tim Sanchez, I think. He was, uh, my, in my full-wheel drive club, my nickname was, or my CB handle, I guess at that time, was Rock Walker. Uh, and then, uh, I'm not sure how, that, maybe it was a full-wheel drive, I formed a full-wheel drive club when I was in high school, actually, and we, had, uh, we got noticed by the promoters of the Truck and Tractor Pool Series. And they would take us to all the different events to do the judging, the scoring, the, you know, we would be a guys would be the guy to hop in the mud pit, hook up the chain, or we would be the guys measuring for the, and if you got a, if you went all the way to the end of the course, it was full pole, full pole. And uh, somehow Tim put that together with, uh, you know, pulling on tiny and gave me the nickname King Full Pole. And it kind of stuck. And only, it's funny now, it's like Mitch Guthrie or somebody else say, hey, KFP, and but very few people know or remember that uh, that handle anymore. The full pole, yeah. Yeah. So after after Tiny and didn't you own didn't you own one of the scrappers for a while? No, I had uh, one of the carnivore. I had the carnivore that uh, four wheel drive or Peterson's four wheel and off road built and raffle or they had Avalanche build it. They raffled it off. Uh, the guy that bought it or won it. I mean, he. Uh, it was funny. It was a super call. We just won the super call. They gave away that buggy, and I said, "I'm going to own that." Buggy. <laughs> I kind of wrote it down. I was like, as a as a life goal, and then uh, because Johnny G did incredible things with that during these events, but uh, the guy that bought it sold it just so he could pay the income tax on it. And the guy that bought it from him borrowed against his house, and he was driving it one day, and he said, "I wrecked this." I'm paying on it for the next 30 years. <laughs> so, so he sold it and it, you know, from their retail value to by the time I got, it, it was a pretty reasonably priced uh, buggy. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I did a lot of cool things in that uh, because I own that. I got an invitation to the first KOH. Uh, at that point I was still kind of a rock calling purist. I, I hated the fact that it was going to rock racing because I thought it kind of took away from the, the sport. I understood why, because, spectators like a green flag and a checkered flag and i think they like to know there's a leaderboard you know it's kind of it's easier to follow as a spectator than uh than rock crawling was or is you know you really have to know the drivers and the sport i think to understand what's going on but with the green flag and checkered flag it's that guy is winning uh, yeah but i, I kind of thought it uh carnivore had no up travel it was all droop it was set up as a pure rock buggy, small fuel cell, because really it only had to run eight minutes at a time, and always had to refuel between courses, and I thought, man, this is, although I knew all the trails, built most of them, and I knew how well the carnivore worked, uh, that getting between the trails would have just heat it up, so I thought, nah, I'm, I kind of regret that I did, because it had been kind of cool to be one of the OG 13, but or 14, if it, I guess it would be 13, actually, because it was really the trail. Yeah, because there was actually only 12. Right. So at least according to JT. <laughs> right. And then uh, uh, got into the uh, after that first year, I said, oh, there's something here. And then Shannon had me as part of his crew crew on uh, eight and nine. And then uh, because of my rock hauling experience, 
BFG had put Rob McCachran in one of the Blue Torch Fab cars, which was a quite a pitching car for the time in 2010. Uh, and again, I think it was probably a Tim Chan Sanchez that put this, Tim Sanchez and Frankie Angelo put it together, but had me in there as a co-driver. They probably would have had uh, John, but I don't think he fit in the uh, <laughs> in the chassis. So I got the job and it was just eye-opening to me to see how amazing this machine worked and how fast it could really go through the desert. And, uh, and I had absolutely no off-road racing experience. I'd, I've been to the thousand at that point, you know, as a kid and I was into the going fast, but had no idea what it took to be a co-driver. Hung out with Rob for a day and just beat the shit out of me. And I was scared the whole time. And I called him that night and said, Rob, I just, I'm not your guy. I can't do this. I, I'm scared to death. He goes, well, you're the guy. He said, I want you. You're, I need help in the rocks, and you're the guy to help me in the rocks. But, you know, if you – most of my peers would say that I was probably slow because I don't drive faster than I can see. I'm, I'm very conservative. I very really wreck. My number one job is to protect us. My second job is to protect the car. Um, and and all you have to do is relax. And you were, you were holding on your life he said just fold your hands in your lap and just so he went out again and took his advice just kind of relaxed and said okay i could do this and then i was just blown away at not only rob's talent of course but how fast he picked up the rocks but <clears throat> how fast a rock crawler could go across the desert with somebody like rob driving and i was i was hooked at that point and did a couple of desert races that, that same year i think i did the uh, thousand with uh uh, Brian Hartman, he had a Jeep Speed. Scott Hartman, excuse me. Uh, he had a Jeep Speed, and I had, and Brian was there, of course, but I had no idea what it was all about to race that. And I was basically just a sack of potatoes in the driver or passenger seat for 350 miles. But I learned a lot from Scott, learned a lot about the race, and I mean, this is pretty fun. I think I can get into this. And then I had a couple opportunities with BFG to race it in the wide open class and had some success. And, three years or three years with him yeah you're are you still with the bfg um program there with the influencers yes i'm still one of the uh ambassadors and performance team members and i'm still on the performance team i'm not sure how or why i guess the, the fact that i own a jeep tour company keeps me qualified for it but uh but i'm still a part of that and it's still a i mean they're just BFG does it right not only are they have great tires and they spend a lot of time and money on R&D. I mean, they, they don't spend a lot of money on marketing. They spend all their money on developing a better tire and they just continue to do that. And that's uh, maybe hurts them in the overall sales because, you know, all the other guys are buying baseball teams or, or professional, you know, MMA fights they're sponsoring. And you don't see BFG at most of those, but, but if you want to rock on, if you want to win, you had to be on crawlers and, it was. It is probably still that way in the desert, but the uh, other teams are, the tire companies are pretty smart at buying the. They've really got their bases covered. When you have the top five drivers on on your tire, chances are pretty good you're going to get a win. And you know, BFG had wins in Baja for 25 years straight, and then had a couple of DJ Baldwin wins that kind of interrupted it there. But uh, still, I think uh, still the best tire. Uh, and so being a part of that is, is pretty cool. The stuff we get to do, we get to go test tires. So on the 
KO2 and on the KM3, it both on the sidewall, it says Baja champion. And I was fortunate and honored to be on that team that won the first KO2 and one in the first KM3 that gave it, gave them the right to put Baja champion on the uh, sidewall. So that's I'd awesome. That's a pretty cool accomplishment. How did you go from construction into then I know there had to be a lot of things or a couple things in between, but then you became, you know, to where you are now at Zion, but also with uh, Poison Spider. So I, I, at that point, I owned a real estate business and a construction business, and they kind of worked hand in hand. We're doing spec houses and I enjoyed the construction part of it. And the real estate part was the one that was making the money. And I, it was a great business and it made great money, but I wasn't as passionate about it as I should have been. And, and that's a real problem. And, but I was always passionate about it. I mean, what we did every other weekend, if not every weekend, we were out in the desert and the Chiefs and camping and, and uh, had a lot of great opportunities from the you know, Ultimate Adventures to uh, Rock Hall. And I got to meet a lot of other people and actually did work with uh, John at All Pro. Uh, he had us do a bunch of marketing, working with him on a bunch of marketing. We were do, helping him with events and, and promotion. And actually, I think at one point we were talking about possibly buying in and being a partner. But I was a Jeep guy. I was very passionate about Jeeps that wasn't as passionate about the Toyotas. I bought one and we fixed it up and they're fun. And, but it was just, you know, just wasn't a perfect fit. And uh, I asked John to help me find a Jeep based business that I could get into. Uh, I looked at starting from scratch. You know, I had a full business plan of how long it would take for, you know, Joe Blow off road, whatever I call it, to get to a point where it was making money. It was like five years before it even broke even. And then uh, if I bought an existing business that already had a brand that it was going to go much quicker. And we looked at, I think Downey was for, there was all kinds of them that were for sale back then. And uh, just none of them fit. I didn't give up. I was still working with John. And then Clifton posted on Pirate that he's going to shut uh, Poison Spider down. I thought, man, what the waste. He's got such a great brand. I loved his products. I was building my own stuff for my Jeep back then that was very similar to what he was building. It was like the first armor back then. You know, before that, it was chrome tube bumpers and diamond plate corners and but he was actually building stuff for the new sport of rock crawl. And I really kind of dug his stuff. And he talked about shutting down. I thought, man, that's a, that's a waste. And because I'd been on an ultimate adventure with him and I, you know, I don't know if we had a relationship, but at least I knew him and he, I knew he would take a call. Uh, I got, uh, got a hold of him and said, don't shut it down. Let's uh, me buy that part of it. Keep the tire or the wheels, keep the buggies and just let me buy the uh, manufacturing part of it. And that was, I don't know, midsummer in 08 or 09, I think. And then uh, said, so let's meet at SEMA. We met at SEMA. We came up with a price. We agreed to it. And it was supposed to close just before Christmas in December. And a lot of things happened to Clifton, not stuff that he was in control of, things that other forces had some influence on that forced him to go into bankruptcy and that killed the deal. So it was off everything that I was going to get, you know, equipment and fixtures and all that was gone. So uh, now uh, it's in bankruptcy. Clifton and I are still talking and we figure out a way to buy it at the end of bankruptcy. So you know, Clifton's 
got a fresh slate. He's got some cash. The bank's paid off. But all I'm getting in is the logo. Basically, it's what I'm buying. So the price change went up quite a bit. So I got some intellectual property. And uh, as soon as I closed, Clifton started sending over drawings. So I had, I got three or four drawings per email. And I probably got 2,000 drawings. I had no idea. Was this a fixture part? Was this a part for, I had no idea. It took me months to go through them. And then we'd cut our first TJ Fender and realized, oh, this is not the, they don't fit. So this was revision one. Let's find revision three in here somewhere. So it took us months and months and months. It was eight months before we had uh, our first product that we could actually sell. Uh, and there were some legal issues with the title that took us a bunch of money and almost wiped us out to get through that part so we could actually open it up. And I guess the good thing about the timing was that a lot of really talented people were out of work. I was able to hire stuff for people that I could never have afforded or that, that wouldn't have been available. And I still call it lightning in the bottle. That first five or six people we had at the beginning that stayed, most of them stayed with us till the very end were the key to that business's success. I mean, we had Dusty in marketing and my daughter was doing all the accounting and my wife was basically a real estate business was funding us for, <laughs> for a couple of years. Uh, another friend that was doing our sales and then had a fabricator that came in and and then it slowly took a few years, you know, there's years where I was thinking, man, I made the biggest mistake in my life. I'm throwing good money after bad, trying to keep this open. And then something just finally changed the turn. I think that the key was buying our own equipment. John, I was following John's business model and I was a pretty, still a pretty smart business model where he had he designed it sent it to a job shop to have it built. So if you needed 10 bumpers, you order 10 bumpers. You need 100, you order 100. You don't have all these capital expenses. You don't have to have a huge building. You don't have to have a million dollar laser and a $500,000 press break and just order what you need. I was doing that, but then our sales got to the point where we were leaving a lot of money on the table. You know, Cody had his second bomber. He had his half million dollar motor home. I thought, you know, maybe we're leaving some money on the table here. He's doing pretty good. And, and yeah, the job, shop, look, job shops were looking pretty good at that point. <laughs> yeah, he was doing, he did great work, and, but he was making good money. And uh, one of the laser companies came out and they looked at our product line. They figured out how much time it would take to cut it and to bend it. And, and then uh, put together a proposal and showed us how much money we were leaving on the table every month. And it was what I used to make in a year is <laughs> uh, what we were losing every month by not having. So we took that huge leap huge risk you mean that the million you can't either pay cash for these or you finance it like a car for five years and can you imagine what a payment is on you know, three quarters of a million a million bucks in five years that's a huge chunk of money so it was a huge risk uh, but i think that was the point we turned the corner and actually started making money and we paid the thing off early and had no debt had a guy in florida car who did a bunch of marketing for us that really I think it helped. And we, he was big into Facebook and we were into the forums and the forums are slowly kind of dying and Facebook was slowly starting to take off. So we kind of transitioned and we're kind of ahead of the curve and some of that marketing and just again, lightning the ball. It to the right people at the right time at the right place. And it just kind of took off. And, and I was very comfortable. I was happy with what I was doing. I, it got to be really Big job, and there was 130 people at one point. That wow, uh, that's a lot 
a lot to manage. <laughs> so uh, I kept thinking the economy was going to turn. We had to, we needed to make some big investments to take, you know, to go to the next step. You know, a lot of uh, automation, a lot of robotic welder. We were looking at a, a new laser and press break. I mean, these were looking at a couple million dollars of expenses. Again, that would have had to pay off five years. And I kept thinking all it would take is one little blip in the market. I'd lose everything that I had ever worked for pretty quickly if uh, market turned. So I was a little hes hesitant. So we kind of just coasted for a while, afraid to make that next step. Got an offer from another company that did a bunch of research and told us how much the thing was worth. And I thought, oh my God, I can't believe it. Are you, I'll never have to work again if, you, if this happens. So they looked at it, we got really close. And then somebody looked at buying them. So they had to stay really lean and they couldn't finish the sale. So I'm not, I'm never going through that again because it was three months of hell, you know, trying to go through all the paperwork and all the processes. And we were trying to stay lean. So the EBITDA looked really good. And then uh, it's a cool story, I guess. So we were, we were doing the best we've ever done. You know, we were doing huge money every month and I was so happy and, daughter was doing the books and one day she came to me and said dad you're gonna have to put some money in to cover payroll I said what are you talking about we, we just had the best month we've ever had how could there not be money I said, well we've got you know million bucks in receivables I said how we don't offer credit we have two companies i think that we give credit to and we've limited them to 100 grand how can we do this for the money said, well, they, that 100 grand was what they used to buy a month, well, now they're doing that in a week and they were only paying monthly and we didn't want to cut them off. So one got to four and the other got to 750 or whatever. And God, this is crazy. I'm glad we got in the sales and I don't want to cut them off. So I had a meeting with uh, Transamerica to figure out how do we do this? Do we pay every couple of weeks? And how we, I, I, I don't want to cut you guys off. I want you to be able to continue selling what you're selling, but, but I can't afford to float it. So I had a meeting with their controller and i think greg was sitting in the other other room kind of listening in and before he left he said hey can i talk to you before we uh we take off and i said sure and we walked to his office and he said uh looking at our paperwork here and it shows that we're doing this much money with you every month i said yes it's all right he said well you're not even on our program I said, what do you, mean? So, you know typically you have to buy in and you have to Promise to go to 13 Truck Fest. You got to pay to advertise in our magazine. You got to pay if you want us to stock his stock in the store. Yeah, all these requirements. And I said, I can't, I can't afford to do any of that. So I've never done it. He said, The only way we sell is if somebody walks into full parts, insist on your part. My guy's job is to talk him out of that part. And then the guy still has to insist. And we have to tell him he's got to wait two weeks to get it or he can walk out with one of our house brands. And they still are asking for that stuff. And you're still doing this much money. What do you got going on? I said, I said, my customer is a guy that with his hands on the steering wheel, the customer is Myers and Keystone and, and that your message never gets down to the guy with the steer hands on the steering wheel. That's where we're targeting all of our marketing and they're asking for it. And they're, they're forcing it up. You're trying to force it down their throats and they're trying to, you know, they're bringing it from the bottom up. So anyway, he said, you know, we'd be interested in buying. And I said, well, I already know what it's worth. I just had somebody look at it. So here's my number. And I said, okay. And then, uh, several months and then of course i got cancer in the middle of it so it uh really made me reevaluate i thought you know i die i leave this mess to sherry what a mess to try and manage you know for her i, I just can't do that to her selling started to make a lot more sense i thought it'd be much easier to give her a check <laughs> if i die than it would be to give her a 
130 employees in this this monster. So it all it all kind of worked out. I I miss it, but I don't regret that I sold it. I mean, okay, it was for my health probably one of the best things that I've ever done. It was coming a very stressful job. The level of stress at the Jeep Tour company is nothing compared to the decisions I'm making now are minuscule compared to the decisions I had to make then. So uh, a lot less stressful. It sucks to be in the tourism business right now, but, <laughs> but uh, a lot less stressful than it was managing Poison Spider. So you touched on on the fact that you you had cancer. I think it really was a big shock, I'm sure, for your family, but also for all of your friends and acquaintances out there in the off-road world. I think it was the first, the first where, where, at least for me, where an illness like that hit what I would call hit home with somebody real close to us that, you know, was going through what you went through. Do you, do you mind discussing that a little bit? It, it was a shocker for me also. I, I always consider myself the healthy guy. You know, like I didn't eat great, but I thought I ate pretty well. I worked out every day. I always felt like I was healthy and I was always challenged. You know, we have push-up contests in one end, push-up. I mean, all these things that you know, I can hike more, I can lift more. I was very competitive physically. So getting cancer was a huge, huge shock to us. I Just so everybody who was listening, the Throat cancer is the the fastest growing form of cancer in males from 40 to 60, I think. So uh, if you have any of these symptoms, I had really bad headaches. And it was like behind my ear. Uh, my primary care doctor thought for sure it was a uh, ear-related problem. But he didn't want to send me to an ear, nose, and throat doctor because he said the first thing he's going to do is stick tubes in your ear. And let's, let's eliminate everything else first. And then... We were out at the Hammers one weekend camping, and uh, it's like right after Expo. And I, at Expo, I, I, I drink a lot of Pedialyte just because it's hydrating. So it has a foil cap, and you use the cut, the lid, and you cut the foil, and you bend it in, and you drink it. Well, I cut it, and it fell in, I guess. But I just poured it in a cup and drank it. And then I was in the motorhome, and in the middle of the night, I got up and thirsty, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to grab a swig of this Pedialyte. <laughs> I took a drink, and the foil went down my throat. I got caught in my throat and was acting like a valve as I was trying to exhale, it would shut. When I was trying to inhale, it would shut. When I was trying to exhale, it would open. So I couldn't cough it out because it would just open it up and I inhale and shut it. I'm going to die in my bathroom in the motorhome in the middle of the hammers because I can't get, I'm thinking about how to get myself the Heimlich. And finally, I made myself throw up and got the foil out. Well, my throat was horribly raw for weeks after that. Uh, so I added that to my symptoms. I said, man, I've got a real scratchy throat and sore throat. And it's now, it's went on for months after that. Uh, so finally they sent me to an ear, nose and throat doctor and realized, uh, went there, he looked at my ear, looked at my throat and expected to say, yeah, we're going to give you tubes or an antibiotic or whatever it is or clean some wax out of your ear. And said, uh, well, we're going to make an appointment with, uh, an oncologist. I'm going to do a biopsy today, give you an EKG and, Oncologist, that sounds like cancer, isn't it? Said, yeah, it could be. I don't want you to get upset yet, but it could be. And that was that, that appointment changed our lives. It really put everything into perspective at that point. How valuable, uh, how invaluable of 
monetary things were and how valuable family and friends and were. And, uh, might have been one of the best things that ever happened to us. It really changed my, my whole perspective. I probably would have worked myself to death had I not got cancer. And now we are much slower paced and try to take time to enjoy stuff that we never did before. And but throat ache or sore throat, consistent throat, sore throat, headaches. Uh, you see an ENT. The, your dentist can usually spot it, the, the tumor in the throat, but mine was so far back that the dentist never saw it. He was, I had the same dentist for 20, 25 years, and he was so apologetic that he didn't see it. But And since I've had it, I've learned of several other people in our community that have had it. You know, Walker Evans had it. Dave Cole had it. Ricky Rocket that we had built the Jeep for, that you know, the drummer from Poison, he he got it. And I'm thinking, man, the, the common denominator here is all of us spend time with the hammers. Is this hammers related? And my doctor said, no, it's it's not. HPV is what causes causes my form of throat cancer, and Walkers and Bubble Days and Ricky's. Eighty um, percent of the American population has HPV and doesn't know it. And you can get vaccinated for it now as a kid. So if you've got kids, don't fight it. Get that vaccination and eliminate the risk of having this type of cancer anyway. But having Walker, Walker would call me and say, don't be a pussy. Get out and do stuff or whatever. And it was <laughs> like, I know this guy could do it. I mean, I saw him at Moab one year and he looked horrible. And I looked at my pictures at the hammers right after my treatment. But I looked the same way. I just ruins your neck and all your muscles and skin and everything just and from the radiation you just kind of fall off your face and uh, it took a while for it to slowly start backing back up but i saw walker right after his treatment and it looked horrible I thought, man that's he aged a lot in the last year and then the next year i saw him he looked kind of back to normal and, but the uh treatment is and dave's dave didn't talk about it you know walker did a little bit but we were pretty active socially because of the business, and I just disappeared for a couple of months. I didn't want people thinking that there was a problem with poison spiders, so I thought it was better that made it public, and, and it helped. I mean, there's a lot of people that have reached out to us. There's a, a friend of ours right now up in, uh, in California that's reached out several times to know, try to figure out what's next, you know, and the best thing I can tell you is it's treatable and cancer really enough. If you have any symptoms, get it checked because earlier you catch it, the better your chances of recovery and the worse or the less invasive the treatment is. It was horrible treatment. <laughs> but I, well, that's good. I know that a lot of us, you know, with you having it and then Dave having it shortly thereafter, a lot of us, anytime we got a sore throat, we're like, you know, are we right. now? Right. You know, I mean, every time I got a sore throat, I was thinking that, but the awareness, we, we, it's tough to have a friend go through that, but it also, you know, it does bring the awareness of, of the possibilities. So. All right. All right. If nothing else, I hope that it uh, helps somebody else catch it sooner uh, just by knowing that it's prevalent, number one, and knowing what the symptoms are. That's just two of the potential system, or symptoms, but trouble swallowing, uh, sore throat, earaches, headaches. Uh, mine, the tumor just happened to be pressing on a nerve. That's where I got the... Uh, headache from but you know swollen lymph glands in your neck these are all potential signs of you know, lymph glands by your ears these are all potential signs of uh, 
an issue with uh, with cancer, not necessarily just throat cancer, but cancer. So let's talk about KOH, the 40, what was it 4,500 class? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking outside the box. I remember when, uh, when you built that poison spider car, was that, what was the name of that car? Was that daddy long legs? That was Venom. And eight, nine, I was with Shannon. 10, I was with Rob McCachran. 11, we built a JK for Dave Cole in like 17 days. We got it. I think he bought it in December. We got it early January. And then we only had it for a short amount of time and had to go to somewhere else. So we, we had 17 days to try and build this thing. And we raced in uh, King of the Hammers before there was a modified class in this JK. I remember being on the course and having course workers screaming at me, get off the course. Off the course, I thinking you were a spectator. <laughs> yeah, thinking I was a spectator on the course because it was so stock looking. And then Dave started talking at Easter Jeep Safari that same year about doing classes in King of the Hammers, and they talked about what it was going to be. You know, here's a stock class and a modified class, and and a modified. The way he explained it sounded like you know somebody was going to be able to take their trail rig and some safety stuff to it and race in this modified class. So I bought a burnout chassis, thinking that's as a most of the tub I need, and it had uh, the frame, which I needed for this class, and everything else, the dry paint was allowed to be tampered with. So I had that, had it all ready, was just waiting for the rules to come out before we started building, and the rules came out, and I read through them with that. If anybody's reading these rules like I'm reading them, you know, you don't have to start with it. It has to look like a Jeep or a vehicle. I can do that with fiberglass. It has to have a frame from the back seat to the motor mount, and say what frame it has to be. It doesn't even have to match the body. Just has to be a frame and doesn't say that it had to be any distance apart it just say you had to have a frame in there so started thinking about it and thought well what jeep has a c channel frame so i looked at a cj2a frame bought that what else they slid into each other pretty nicely so now i had two frame rails i had welded them together and had a little tab hanging in the front and the back where i could fish the frame in and it on and that required that met the frame requirement and i had dave as you know every step or every decision i was making i wouldn't you know call dave so listen this read the rules does this work and he said yeah it does and uh, then we had the idea for the steering and uh said well i, I can't tell you until it's built whether or not it's going to qualify and then so we spent a lot of time trying to get it built and he came out and we did a couple of shut the motor off and had to steer it with the cables and did everything that was required to become mechanical steering. Uh, and this was when the, the uh, pirate was pretty big and we had a build thread on pirate and we got, I got hate mail from people <laughs> because of that build. It's probably, I guess it's like, you know, any publicity is good publicity, even though, uh, you know, it pissed off a lot of people, they probably weren't our customers anyway. Uh, our customers dug it, you know, they thought it was cool. And, and a lot of that stuff I learned from Learn from uh, John Nelson. If it doesn't say in the rules and you can't do it, you can do it, <laughs> basically. And, um, he was the best at reading between the lines and the rules. Then, you know, people are saying that you know, it doesn't meet the spirit of the class. And then, and then all, now that class, unless you're in a tube frame buggy, you're not competitive. I mean, it's totally different. And a couple of guys are using that boat steering because it is, is approved uh, for the, uh, the class now. And the nice thing about, you know, uh, steering box. Kind of sucks through the desert. I know Curry and Savvy have kind of got it figured out where it doesn't affect them too much. 
but you know we were looking at all the swing set stuff and trying to get it all where you didn't have a bump steer and the cable just seemed to work out so that very first race we really you're waiting so long to get the rules that we it took us till almost the day before the race before the car was done we didn't get a lot of testing done so our the very first race we started 14th i think and the car was fast when we passed everybody in our class by Hummel Hill or whatever that is going out towards the Marine base, except for uh, Rector, who was one of Dean Bullock's cars. And we caught the guy several times, but it, it was, you know, two track and rocks. You couldn't pass him. So the guy never let me pass, never let me pass. And all we got on the lake bed and we were both hauling ass and motors. So, <laughs> so we got around him. And then we got, we were so far ahead that, I don't know if we felt bad, but we didn't want to piss people off by coming in hours. So we were just kind of cruising. Oh, I see dust. We'd speed up a little bit and cruise, see a little dust. We'd speed up a little bit. And then we got to, uh, what was it, Chocolate? No, it was uh, Big Johnson. Got to the top of Big Johnson and the steering broke. And then while we were working on the steering, Gerald drove by and John. That, that dust behind us wasn't even in our class. This is a stock class guy that's on her butt. So Call our guys in the pit, and they said, "Bring, you know, see if you can get it here." And we—it was such four minute thing. We're just going back and forth, so you couldn't really get any speed. Drove down the pit, and they said, "We have nothing to help you here. You're 20 miles from the finish line. It's all desert. See what you can do." So we drove it back, and it was it would go straight for a while, and shoot off to the left. And you know, when I kept, and then the helicopter would fly over. So as soon as the helicopter's there, you want to go faster, and then. Start going a little bit faster and then zoom off to the left of the course and the right of the course and almost roll. And so finally, I just reeled it in a little bit and got it across the finish line. We won our class, but of course, uh, stock class car came in first and kind of ruined our overall. You know, it was that, that car could have, other than this, not having enough time to refine the steering. And now that the rest of the year, we use that, we refine the steering, use two cables instead of one, and it was a much better handling machine. Uh, and then it went on, got 10th or 11th in King of the Hammers in the modified class car. In our modified class car, because you're allowed to race it when you get a, uh, you win your class. So, so it still, still was a, I mean, it's still like somebody bought it or, you know, Mike Kiston bought it for a unlimited class car and did okay. And it finished, I think, a couple of times he raced it. And it could have been, I know, that one of the years we raced, we were up front for quite a bit. And then uh, I broke the ram off the car that took us out. Still finished, but it took the, took us out for several hours. Probably in the top five for a while. But everybody does, I guess. Everybody was winning until, <laughs> until that, whatever happened. So. Let's talk about uh, Zion and how you ended up in uh, tourist business now, but how you ended up in, uh, in St. George. So when we came here to Rock Crawl in 2003, Sherry and I kind of fell in love with St. George. We, at that point, had an aluminum patio cover business, one of the several businesses we own, and they only work in certain conditions. You know, if there's a snow load, they don't work. And we saw a lot of them up here, and I thought, well, I could really easily move this business up here in St. George. And But we had family and businesses there that, you know, we didn't really want to walk away from. So kind of put it on back burner for a while and then uh, came up in 2011 for an event and went to San Hollow for the first time. I thought, man, this is is something special I, I really want to get up here so we started looking at moving poison spider here i was looking to build a building in banning for a hundred thousand square foot building in banning it was going to cost me nine million dollars 
I found a 75,000 square foot building here with a 25,000 square foot uh, covered area that we could have used for material. So I would have had my 100,000 square feet and it was only I don't know, two or three million bucks. So I would have saved $6 million just by moving here. But it would have been probably 250 grand to move all the equipment. You know, we would have had to do it and we would have had to build up inventory. I mean, just the process was overwhelming. And I had my engineer, uh, my uh, Dusty, the marketing guy, a couple of really key employees that I was worried that wouldn't come with us and that, that, you know, that lightning in the bottle just would be the same without them. So after going through the whole process here, and I decided, you know what, this just doesn't make sense to move at this point. And come to find out later, an engineer who had just bought a house that I would have rented it, and my other guy whose wife, or Dusty, whose wife had a teacher, said she could work anywhere, we would have done it. And I thought, oh man, I could have moved here years ago. But, but then I sold Poison Spider and thought, you know what, let's just get a second house up there. You know, we can go back and forth and visit it. You know, we love the place. Lance, at that point, we'd gone looking with Lance, and he ended up buying the house a year or so before us and we were commuting back and forth and it got harder and harder to go back to banning still own the real estate business and i don't know after a couple of years i convinced sarah sherry to sell the real estate business and then uh, we moved up here full time i still we were going to retire i didn't wasn't going to work anymore i was just going to have fun after three years of being retired i was really bored and i had a no compete contract with poison spider so though i couldn't get back into what i really enjoyed doing was you know building parts for jeeps but i still wanted to play with jeeps and I, at, at first i thought i would get into guiding where i do like what dan mix doing just taking people out in a group and either they follow me in their jeep or they ride with me in my jeep and i take them out and follow them on some trails and then i looked at insurance and permitting and all that started to sound kind of overwhelming the tourism committee here in uh, southern utah specifically Springdale, which is a little town outside of Zion. They were trying to figure out how to, you know, they were kind of a one-trick pony. It was, you go on and hike a day or two and then you leave, and the hotels wanted people to stay here longer and were looking for other activities for their guests. And they invited uh, Lance, myself, and Ryan Hagel to a meeting, dinner meeting to, uh, to discuss the off-road market. And talked a little bit. They took us over to the visitor center, and there was a Jeep tour business that had a, display in there and I said man that guy's got it going on he's got the right name he's got the right look he's got everything looks vehicles look cool and one of the uh tourism guys said that thought it was for sale I don't know if it was that morning or the next morning at eight o'clock I had a meeting with the guy an hour later I shook his hand and we were in escrow and <laughs> became a, a tour business owner that I knew nothing about but for me, the challenge is trying to figure it out I think that was I, I knew nothing about building I could build one bumper or one set of rockers for my Jeep, but I had no idea how to mouse produce them. And that the process of learning that was fascinating to me. And so was learning this tour business and put a lot of money in it the last couple of years and this vehicle, knowing what I know about the builds and what I know about the vehicles now and what sailed on them. I built this vehicle that we thought was going to be, it still will be the kind of the perfect tour vehicle for what we do. And then training in it, we I spent a bunch of money on training. We hired a bunch of new guides because we had more vehicles and did the training for all that. And then light switch flipped and people stopped traveling. We get dozens of cancel. You know, people book a year in advance for us. You know, and I'd say, would you say 70% less in advance? Anyway, so a lot of people book in the, the week prior, but most people book in advance. All the ones that booked in advance, you know, all this, we, they book. 
money goes into our account. We've got a checking account, and then started getting cancellations. And, and then, uh, you know, we have to pay for our insurance, which is the most expensive expense we have besides payroll and fuel, which you don't have if you're not working. But anyway, that's paid at the beginning of the year. So it takes till May or so to even make that money back. But all that money in the account left refunds and nobody books. You know, we, everything, everything is stopped. So uh, we had to put money in the account just to get to a point where hopefully we can reopen. And we're not sure what it's going to look like when we reopen. We have uh, a group tour or two, and you know, we have 12, two 12 passenger trucks that go out a lot. And that's kind of the bread and butter. But are we going to be allowed to do? put strangers in a truck together or is it going to be all private tours where guide and the uh, guests are separated and the guy, the guests are in the open air and it's only your family. It's, it's so I'm trying to figure out what it's going to look like when this comes back around. We have options, but we just don't know what option to exercise yet. But what is it going to look like in a month or two? And I don't think anybody really knows. You know, it's going to be like what happened after 9-11 where you're telling your kids, yeah, we used to fly I could bring my nail clippers with me when we flew. Yeah, so we're just wondering if it's going to totally change the way people do business after this. You know, just like 9-11 changed the way we fly, is uh, this going to change the way people travel? Is it going to be more regional travel than it is international travel? A big part of our business is international. So we're trying to figure that out so that we can be prepared when it finally does come back around. It's just a guess at this point. Yeah, I think we're, we're in that same kind of situation not with the hotel, but with our, with the rock crawls, whether or not they're going to allow us, you know, we're outdoors, people, they're social distancing anyways at the right. event. Everybody's standing around trying to get the best view. They're not, right. you know, they're not in a seat right. you know, next to each other. You know, we're talking about, you know, making sure that the masks are available, you know, to the general public is have, have some of those on site so that people coming in can use them. If they don't bring their own, making sure that there's hand sanitizer, right. you know, all the stuff you can't get right now. Right. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. We, what we're in, we thought, well, let's try to keep it open a little longer and see what happens. Uh, we'll just take precautions. But we, we couldn't get Clorox wipes to wipe the vehicles down. We couldn't get hand sanitizer. We couldn't get anything that would make or, or mask or anything. We couldn't get anything that we felt like would be protecting not only our guys, but the guests. Uh, so it was just made the sense to shut down. We have buffs, which are because you know, in the summer, the, the rides are dusty where it's just a, like a head soft. That right. I think that would qualify as a mask. We usually only give them out if it's really dusty, but I think those are just be something we automatically give out now and everybody can put on their buff. And I guess it just helps protect those around you, not necessarily protect you, but, and then starting to be able to find hand sanitizers and wipes. So I think when it opens back up, we can take the precautions and uh, maybe just not do group tours right away, just do private tours and see how that, you know, not bring all the vehicles back on the insurance, just bring one or two and see what happens when, uh, I'll just bring them on as, as needed if it happens this year. We have a really, not small, it's a, I've never had a, such a seasonal business we're close but this had happened in november wouldn't have affected us at all it would have been because that's when you do all the vehicle maintenance and builds and repairs and because we have no tours basically from november to march 1st we just started ramping up in march and it happened in april and may is when we really started making money and then it kind of just 
keeps growing gradually throughout the summer. But we'll never get that time back. We'll never get those people back. We might get them next year, but you know, most of the ones that cancel said we'll, we'll try again next year. But you know, people that were coming for spring break aren't going to come this summer. They're going to come next spring break, maybe. So it's a scary proposition. Fortunately, we're in a position where you know we don't have any bills. Everything's paid for. The houses, the, all the vehicles. Are, the only bills we had, the only bill we had to pay was that uh, uh, insurance up front, and they've allowed us to deposit uh, some of our marketing. Fortunately, a lot of our contracts <laughs> expired, and we're getting ready to rewrite. So now I can just start them in June instead of paying for these last couple of months. But some we couldn't. Which is, but those expenses are minor. I, I would hate to own Poison Spider right now, especially with monthly nut that we had there it was 300 grand a month just to pay the bills and cover the, the overhead there so it was pretty scary it wouldn't take three or four bad months and it's a million bucks and, <laughs> and yeah it's bad yeah we're we're in a situation where we're able to postpone the events and hoping that once this thing breaks loose that the people that have been sitting at home wanting to do something wanting to be around others um, right. You know, but still maybe not, you know, to that hugging stage, but you know, right. being, still being around other people will want to come out and, and be at the events. Of course, the later it gets, that means, you know, right. moving venues as well as moving, you know, event dates. You know, yeah, I mean, and some of those, some of those venues are seasonal. You know, you don't, right. you don't want to be in Salt Lake in February and you don't want to be in Hammers in August. So, you know, a lot of those are, you know, if you've missed that window, it may not come again until next year. So it's yeah, and then exactly. If, and the competitors want a little time between events to get prepped, and so you know you can't just stack them all in October. And so yeah, it's it's a tough. But I agree with you. I think yours your events are a lot easier to have spectators without social distancing issues, like a a basketball game or an auto race where you're in grandstands sitting next to strangers. So thousands of strangers, I think it would be a little easier. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm I hoping that's big, the case, as long as we can convince the local governments. Probably state by state. You know, we're most of the places that we used to rock crawl, and I'm sure you still do rock crawl, are in rural areas where there's not a lot of concentrated. If you're doing it in downtown New York City, it might be an issue, but, <laughs> but if you're doing it in Congress, Arizona, it may not be <laughs> such an issue. Exactly. So we're... We're hoping that uh, we can get back to business here pretty. We're in the same situation insurance-wise. Beginning of the year, you know, we pay, we make a big down and then right. uh, by event, by month or whatever. And, you know, we did one event. That event was absolutely phenomenal off the hook. And we were thinking, okay, this is great. This is going to be a great year. That's a momentum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, we, we have a this hotel that we own in Tex in Mason, Texas is a four bedroom boutique hotel. You know, they're they're themed rooms to a point, you know, there's we have a library room, a ranch room, shop room, and a farmhouse room. And there there's no cooking facilities. I mean, that's it's bedroom and a bathroom. Right. And it is we're spread out across three rooms right now. I'm in one of the rooms using it as an office. <laughs> we're, we're staying most of the time in the balcony room, which is, overlooks the, it's the library room. It has a balcony and overlooks Main Street. We're right across from the courthouse. So awesome. we do that because it's, you know, a lot of windows and airy. 
And then right. the very far back room has what we think is the best shower. That's the ranch room. So that's kind of where, you know, all our clothes are at, where we take <laughs> right. our showers. Right. And so we're walking up and down. I mean, there's four rooms and a hallway. We walk up and down the hallway, you know, like it's our house. Luckily, nobody's just wandered in because it is right. a small check-in. And I think everybody in town has the code to the door. You know, because once they, I mean, there's a main locked door downstairs. Then you come up 22 steps up to the hotel area. Like I said, you know, most people have their family stay here when they come to visit or wedding parties stay here. So almost everybody has that that downstairs code. Luckily, none of them have caught me going from (laughs) where we're sleeping to going to take a shower. All right. Sounds like a pretty cool place, though, it is. It's it's pretty awesome. It was a it was a really good investment for us, except for this last month and a half. Right, <laughs> right. That'll that'll change. Right. Well, I want to I want to thank you for coming on and and spending spending some time with us and talking about your history. Is there anything that that we didn't touch on that you would like to talk about? I think we covered it all. I I know that this morning I just pulled out a bio that uh, done at offroad.com during the rock calling days and it brought back all kinds of memories. I had some fun. I mean, I've had a really fun, and most of this started at 40 for me. You know, I was a businessman trying to raise a family and then started taking my hobby a little more seriously and then turned that hobby into a business. And and from that moment on, it was, it's been a incredible ride from the hammers to. I, I started promoting my first event um, I was 42 years old when we started promoting events, when I started promoting events. So I understand been doing this 20 years now. I love what I love about off-road is it is the family sure. and the camaraderie, the people we get to hang out with that we all have a like interest and enthusiasm about, about it. You know, it's, it truly is an, a lifestyle, not just a job. And that's, what I missed most about the Poison Spider days and the rock calling, the rock calling days, it was like I was getting to see my buddies every couple of weekends. You know, we did a bunch of events, but in, uh, for Poison Spider, we did over 50 events a year. I didn't go to all of them, but, you know, that, that was pretty much what we did is, is promote. And you got to meet a lot of great, and there were some people that really stood out at every one of the locations, and you looked forward to seeing that handful of people every time they traveled, and, you know, we shut that down. You know, when we sold between uh, cancer and and uh, and I just wasn't up to going out much, and and then uh, really missed that part of, of the game. I don't miss the managing 130 people and all the little all the stuff that goes along with owning a business that big. But I do miss the events because number one, there was some great women, but number two, there was a lot of great people that we got to hang out with. And, I really appreciate your friendship over the years. We've never really had a chance to hang out as as much as as I like to hang out with people, just because we're always moving from event right. to weekend to weekend. As things start to wind down, our events after twenty years, I'm not going to be doing this for another twenty years. I know that, you know, and and now with uh, you know Little Rich and his family down in your area, you know, I hope to be able to spend some more time down in that area and hanging out and maybe coming on one of your yeah. tours. I hope you do. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful area. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm looking out my window thinking, God, we're, we're so lucky that we live where we live. It's just so beautiful. I'll drive home and I'll get mad because the cars in front of me are going so slow. Then I realize it's 
this, this view is spectacular. I understand why they're driving so slow and they're all they pull over and taking pictures and they're driving with their cell phones out. And I'm God, I'm in a hurry, but then I realize, God, we're in God's country. I should just be thankful that I live where I live and, and your son's house. I could probably almost hit it with a rock. I'm sure I could shoot a 22 and it would <laughs> go over his house, but he's pretty close to where we're at now. So come That's visit awesome. some more. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, Larry, take care. Take care, Sherry. And uh, I'll let you know when we, uh, there she is. There I am. You gave me an excuse to take a shower and put clothes on today. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Get up early. Yeah. There yeah. You go. <laughs> so Little Rich, he said, uh, he goes, next time we do an in, you know, do this interview, because we did his at nine o'clock in the morning. Right. He goes, you got to do it later in the day so I can have a couple of drinks and feel relaxed. Right. Well, I thought about that too. You said afternoons and, you know, as a COVID-19 shut-in, I've been, you know, by four o'clock, I've had a few cocktails. So that maybe yeah. I should do it in the afternoon. Let's do, let's do it in the morning. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. I might say that damn Tracy Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> but Tracy Jordan, I love you. You're our greatest motivator. You were the reason I'm so hard. So. <laughs> all right. Well, I thank you very much, and uh, I'll let you know when we bring this all to to, to air. I appreciate it. Thanks for including us, and uh, love to uh, hang out with you when you come up here next. All right. Thank Thanks. you, Larry. Bye bye. Bye. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram, and share our link among your friends who might be like minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.